0: This week we hear from ITV's Paul Brand. Paul grew up in Bridge End, South Wales, and he went to his local comprehensive school. It started a journey that's taken him to the very top of his industry. Now, as a lead political correspondent at ITV News, he offers a unique insight into the current coronavirus outbreak. We talk raising aspirations at a young age, being true to yourself, and the power that being different has. I hope that you enjoy listening to it as much as we did recording it. Paul Brown, thanks so much for talking to us today. Obviously, you are a fantastic reporter reporting ITN and on our screens pretty much most evenings at the moment. Is being a journalist something that you always wanted to do, even as a, as a small child? Or was it something that you, you fell into a bit later in life?
1: So it was something that I was pretty clear I wanted to do from about the age of 17 or 18 when I was looking at university options. Um, My aspirations growing up as a child were pretty broad, actually. I think I wanted to be a florist for a bit. Uh, (laughs) I wanted to be a vet like most children do for some period of time. Uh, I wanted to have a post office uh, at one point. (laughs) Um, And then as I uh, got into my kind of teenage years, uh, I got very interested in politics. It was around the time of the Iraq war. Um, and there was a huge political debate, as I'm sure you recall, about that. Yes. And uh, and so I knew I wanted to kind of study politics. And I thought, you know, what's a good job to do in and around politics? Well, reporting on politics could be really interesting. So then, yeah, I'd say about sort of 17, 18, I set my mind on being a political journalist.
0: But you were never attracted to becoming a politician, maybe. Was, uh,
1: no, N- no. And I don't know. <laughs> i'm I'm not sure how you ever handled being a politician because uh you literally yeah exactly you can't do anything right no i was i was pretty clear i wanted to be a broadcaster um and uh yeah that was that was my my drive and my focus
0: and when you look back would you say there was there were people around you or maybe someone around you that really gave you a sense that you could achieve that aim i mean where did that aspiration come from um, and, and in the sense how did you go about working out what your next steps were to, to get from where you were then to, to where you got to now?
1: Yeah so I I grew up in Bridgend in South Wales which for a while was cruelly dubbed the um, suicide capital of the UK which is actually a really unfair description I had a really really happy childhood there in lots of ways and I went to uh, the local comprehensive school which was a real sort of mix of people so it was Some friends I had from kind of the more deprived towns and villages of, of the South Wales Valley, some friends from the more kind of leafy parts of the Vale of Glamorgan. Um, so my school was a real mix, which I think was a good grounding actually for a journalist because you're kind of coming into contact with all different types of people, which I think personally is very valuable uh, for a journalist because you've got to relate to all sorts of people in, in your job. Um, there wasn't really any kind of sense from the school about what you should be setting out to achieve there was you know i haven't been to a public school so i can't i can't compare but but i get the sense from friends who have been to public school that you are put on much more of a clear path in terms of you know this these are your career options these are the universities you should be thinking about my school was a bit more sort of you know muddle through and try and do well in your exams uh and you'll have an all right life um i think actually where my aspirations came from was my mum. So nobody in her university had been, nobody in her family had been to university before. And when we were growing up as kids, she actually went uh, to train to be a solicitor when mm-hmm. she was about 40. Um, and there's one memory that just really genuinely stayed with me, which was when she got her degree, seeing my my granddad's well up with tears of just absolute sheer pride you know he was a very modest man from the northeast of England um and I don't think he had ever foreseen you know his daughter going on to do that and and so I think from a very early age I mean I must have been about eight around that time without you know knowing it I think that did instill in me a sense that if you work really hard you know it's pretty nice you can make people proud and you can go on and achieve things and and there's a real sense of satisfaction that comes from that And so I always had a I always had a strong work ethic, um, sometimes probably a bit too strong, a bit insanely strong. I was very, very driven at school. I was very focused on my exams. Um, And that, that, yeah, that was my real focus all the way through school was going through exams. And it was only when I kind of, like I say, got to about 17, 18, I thought, right, where do I actually want to channel this energy? What is my career path ahead?
0: And how hard was it ultimately to get into journalism? Because it's it's obviously an area that a lot of people would be interested in having a career in.
1: Yeah, it was difficult. I didn't know anyone in the industry. And I kind of cringe looking back at some of the things that I thought might help me, like some of the letters I wrote to people who were clearly never going to reply. Uh, I remember going to um, a talk by Hugh Edwards because obviously he was Welsh. So I thought, well, that's going to help me because we're both Welsh. And he was Really kind, actually, and gave me some good advice at the time. Um, and then it was just a case of hammering local papers, my local radio station, trying to get some experience via that route. And then my really lucky break came um, when I applied to ITV for a bursary to go and study journalism, mm-hmm. and I got on. I got I, I got a bursary from ITV um, to go and study at City University, um, and that was that was the door really opening for me at that point and I am so grateful to ITV. I mean it's partly why I've stayed at ITV my whole career um, because uh, I will always be grateful to them for for having opened that door for me very early on.
0: So it goes right back to then in a sense there's this change for you which is getting the bursary that just really opens up a brand new path ahead of you that you can then go down.
1: Yeah so that bursary meant that you know, number one, I could go and study without having to worry about living costs and fees. And number two, uh, I got work experience through the bursary scheme. And when I finished my course, there was kind of an informal path then into ITV. So they gave me a little bit of freelance work. And then from there, I, you know, I worked hard to get a contract and a staff job. Um, And then I was on the ladder. Um, And so I think with so many careers, you know, it's just about getting that first you know, your foot on the first rung of that ladder, and then you can start climbing, hopefully, you know, through your own hard work and your own endeavour.
0: And now, I mean, if you were giving advice to your younger self, Paul, what would that be in terms of not just people getting into journalism, but almost what it took in a way to be able to, to do what you've done in your life so far?
1: I think my advice would be Actually, be kind to yourself and and have confidence in yourself. Um, you don't need to work 24/7 to get on in life. You do need to have to you do have to work hard, but um, take time to to celebrate success. Don't just street strive for achievement. Um, and and doors will open. I, I mean, it, journalism is a difficult industry to get into, but I think. I think it is a meritocracy in, in a lot of ways, thankfully, and and what you put in is what you get out. Um, but um, but when I look back, yeah, I think I think I, you know, I did work insanely hard uh, for a lot of my certainly teenage and early twenties um, just to get through that door, and I don't regret any of it. But I think it's important in life as well to to take stock and think okay you know this is a great moment and I need to I need to enjoy this moment not necessarily just wonder about what the next step's going to be
0: you've now done a huge amount of reporting over the years you've been in the industry where would you what would you say the national stories are that you've enjoyed most reporting or the ones that you felt have been the most important to you which ones would you point to
1: I think actually the one that I would point to now is this pandemic that we're in um, because it just there is no parallel Um, of all the things I've reported on you know we thought that Brexit was important we thought that explaining that clearly and concisely was really really vital of course it was but it doesn't compare to giving advice on the news every night about how to save people's lives I mean that there can be no more important information we're used to to telling people on the news what they need to know but but you know in this pandemic we're telling them what they need to do and how they need to behave and and like I say how they need to to act in order to save lives um, and I've been focused during this pandemic on social care and I found that a hugely fascinating sector to explore. I think it's a massively underreported sector. Yeah. Um, and we've been reporting on how social care workers have often faced the same risk from COVID 19, but without the same recognition as, as rightly our, our doctors and our nurses receive. Um, and it, it has been a massive eye opener for me looking into that sector and seeing the brilliant people who work in it um, and how sadly undervalued they have been for for decades by governments of all colours. Um, and I think that will probably change after this pandemic. And it feels it feels like we were maybe we're on the cusp of of a big change in the way that we view social care. Um, and so it feels very important to be part of of reporting that at the moment.
0: And do you think um, in many respects, I think what you have been able to do is give a voice to the people who've been on the front line of that social care challenge but not only you like people like my 99 year old grandma who were <laughs> the ones receiving the care but also the people doing it who as you say in many respects are often out of sight um they may go into a care home and that's where they do their work every day and and the rest of the public in a way don't come into contact with them but i think the stories that they've had to tell have been utterly crucial through this pandemic haven't they
1: Yeah, I agree. I I think the care sector is an interesting one because it does take place predominantly behind closed doors, and it unless you're going to visit a relative, it's not the kind of place that you would walk in in or out of uh, on a daily basis. That you might just sort of stumble across, Um, and so a lot of what they do isn't well understood, Um, and they are on minimum wage. A lot of them, and they're carrying out jobs that are hugely valuable you know what is more important than making sure your grandmother or other people's grandparents and parents have dignity in their lives and are looked after gently and caringly Um, and these are people who quite frankly could go off and and maybe earn a little bit more per hour in retail or hospitality but they do this job because they really, really do think it's important and they really do care. I mean, you, it sounds pretty obvious, but you've got to be caring to be a carer. And I think that's what I've been really bowled over by is just the heart that these people have is absolutely astonishing. Um, and they haven't been, they really haven't been recognized for, for many years. Um, and, I think, like I say, that will have to change after this pandemic, because I think they've really proven their worth in a much more public way than they've been able to in the past.
0: I do think the pandemic redefines who is seen as a key worker much more broadly. But I also think for people who work in the care system, they already were key workers. But in a way, we hadn't ever sufficiently, in a way, recognised that as a, as a wider country. But I certainly think that will change now. Um, and I think the key is going to be how we can almost not lose this moment um, once you get beyond this immediate crisis. Mm. Because the danger is that the bandwagon rolls on to the next to the next political issue, um, you know, Brexit deal towards the end of the year, whatever that might be. And then actually they they get
1: lost all over again. Absolutely. I think there is a kind of critical moment of opportunity here for the care sector, because the government was already talking about cross-party talks at the start of the year, as as you know, it was in the manifesto to to get together with the Labour Party and others to look at how to structure the care sector going forward and how to fund the care sector going forward, which many governments have sort of failed to really uh, get a grip of um, for generations now. And given given the value that they've proven during this pandemic, I think hopefully the momentum will be there. Assuming those cross-party talks do at some stage begin once things have calmed down a bit, I think that will hopefully then carry into those talks and out the end, other end of it where, you know, fingers crossed, we end up with a far more sustainable model for, for the social care sector. Um, yeah. Because it is mind bogglingly complex and, um, and I think there's got to be a better way of structuring it than, than the way it is at the moment.
0: I'm sure that's right. Um, obviously, this pandemic pandemic, and the the lockdown has changed everybody's lives. So what's a typical day like for you now, Paul? And, and in a way, how, how much has it really changed um, since before the lockdown?
1: I'm not sure there is a typical day now, which is <laughs> probably the biggest change. Um, I mean, journalism is a fairly unpredictable business anyway, but But the way my job works now is is very different to the way it worked before. I mean, clearly, like every industry, we're having to to socially distance and we're having to think really carefully about not just the risks that, that we face ourselves, but the risks we may put others under when we're going out and reporting, like, for example, with care homes, when I'm going around the country, you know, it would be quite irresponsible for me to step inside a care home I don't know whether or not I might be carrying the virus and these are highly vul- vulnerable people and so then trying to tell a story about a care home when you can't go inside it and film it which is you know what we would normally do mm. becomes very very difficult so we've had to find all sorts of kind of innovative ways so we've we've disinfected little kind of handheld cameras and and given them to the carers that they then take into the home and film a few bits kind of handy cam for us and hand them back and we disinfect them again and we interview people through windows and outside doors and all that sort of thing um but it's very strange because i'm i'm still going about my job um and i'm very lucky that i still have a job i can go to but traveling around the country it's kind of like a ghost town you know you're on the train and you're the only person um you turn up at a service station to try and find a sandwich somewhere and again you know you might be the only one there it's it feels like you're kind of doing your job uh, in a vacuum of, you know, there's no other people around. And it's um, it's slightly surreal. Um, I
0: think it does give you a unique insight compared to the rest of us. I went in to do a BBC interview a couple of weeks ago on Newsnight and I realised it was the first time I'd actually been any further than half from my own. <laughs> pretty much since the lockdown and i think that's probably the same for most people in, in reality so it has been um an anything but normal time i i think the reporting interestingly and how it's had to change you talked about literally having to interview people through windows in its own way has told the story because it, yeah. it does look so different to how we'd normally see it and all of it just conveys the sense of, of a country that's in a in a very different place to where we'd normally be in every facet of life. Even watching the news, what you see now is different to what you normally would in a way.
1: Yeah. And I think we're very aware of our responsibility to behave on on screen the way that people are being told to behave in their own homes. And when they go to the shops, you know, I think that's why you you may notice on, on the news that, that quite often you'll see what we would normally consider quite an ugly shot of, you know, me stood a couple of meters away with a giant microphone and a huge pole, which (laughs) some people find quite amusing. You you, You know, why are you holding that huge two meter pole? Well, actually, because we're really trying to make the point to you to show how we filmed this. We want you to see how we filmed it so that you know we haven't taken risks and so that we're reinforcing the message for everyone that these are the lengths we've all got to go to in all of our daily lives in order to stay safe.
0: Now, one thing that both of us have in common is we're both part of the LGBT community. Yeah. Um, you famously managed to get Theresa May to apologize for voting against equal equal rights. Um, and you actually have campaigned on LGBT issues for a long, long time. And I think our paths first crossed on that front yeah. when I did an event um, with the charity, just like us. I think it would just be really interesting to get your sense of how being LGBT has affected almost your career path and, and in a sense what it now brings to that to that role you have as a journalist.
1: So I think, um, you know, we talked a bit earlier on about, about drive um, and ambition. And I think strangely being LGBT has given me, um, has given me some of that drive because uh, I guess I knew from an early age that I was different um, and that you know when I was growing up in the in the the late 80s and early 90s being gay was still considered a bad difference it wasn't a difference that you would want to celebrate necessarily especially not when you were a kid and I think maybe it gave me a little bit of a chip on my shoulder actually to think you know right how am I going to prove myself in life it might not be through getting married to a woman and having having children. So what else can I do to prove my worth and to prove that I'm just as good as other people? And I think for me, schoolwork and ultimately career were ways that I could channel myself and, and I guess feel good about myself. Um, so I'm quite grateful that it gave me that drive. I mean, as I've said before, you've got to be careful where the line is between exhausting yourself and actually stopping for a moment and being kind to yourself and saying, okay, look, you know, what you've, what you've achieved today is is worth taking a moment and, and feeling good about. Um, you can fall into a trap where you're constantly striving and constantly driving. Um, but yeah, I, th- I'm, i I think my sexuality in, in a way has been um, an asset um, to me. Um but I'm aware that it's not an asset to everyone and, and some people really struggle with it. And that early stigma and that early shame that you experience in childhood can have real damaging consequences for lots of people, which is why, um, as you mentioned, I got involved with Just Like Us, um, which you kindly supported when, when you were Education Secretary, too. Um, because we've got to stamp out that stigma at the earliest possible age so that it doesn't start to colour people's lives and and damage people's lives.
0: I couldn't agree with you more and Just Like Us is an amazing charity that I think helps just at the right moment for a lot of young people and I think from my perspective I'd certainly hope and see the barriers to LGBT young people coming down rather than hopefully going up certainly a lot lower I think than when um, I was growing up as well but what's your sense of the difference today maybe in our schools compared to when you were a, a school student and pupil or maybe when I was?
1: I mean there's no doubt that schools have completely transformed even yeah even in the time since since I left sixth form I mean there was there were no LGBT clubs or anything like that when I was at school um, whereas now a lot of schools will have an LGBT um, club or will join in with what we um, what we run, which is School Diversity Week, um, which is a kind of week-long celebration of, of LGBT diversity in schools, which coincides with Pride in July. Um, so schools are undoubtedly a far more accepting place than they were. It's just about intervening, I think, as early as possible um, to prevent that initial feeling of difference from becoming a negative feeling, because you know, in my experience, you know, from the age of about five, I think, I might not have known I was gay, but I knew I was different. I knew that I didn't want to play football in the playground. I knew that I didn't want to kiss girls. And um, and that difference felt quite worrying you know, from what I can remember. So it's about trying to intervene as early as you can to, to make sure that difference doesn't become a negative emotion. Um, and from your experience as education sector, you'll know that that is complicated because it involves a discussion in schools from from a fairly young age about lgbt diversity which which some parents don't always feel comfortable with and i think it's sometimes misrepresented as kind of sex education which is certainly not what i'm talking about here i'm not saying that we should be talking about physical relationships um at that age i, I just think there needs to be a kind of gentle introduction of the fact that you know hey your friend in your classmate might have two dads or two mums and that's cool and when you go out into the real world when you grow up there's going to be all sorts of different people like that um, it's just that real gentle messaging that it's okay to be different and it, and it's not a negative thing um, but that's difficult to do as I think you probably experienced.
0: I think it's very difficult to do but in a way for me as Secretary of State for Education then it made it all the more important to try and change things because the danger I think with sensitive issues like this um for people are that you just think well we'll come back to that later but actually for everyone not just for the people i mean totally affected by it it really matters and i think reforming relationships and sex education and, and going through that process to say well actually we can look at this in a sensible sensitive way we can have a a smart approach you can you can look at the work that's already been done in many schools around the country and see what the good ideas are of, of how we do this. I think going through that was probably one of the most important things I probably did at my time at education and I do think it's a journey and I think for people who are younger um, but part of the LGBT community to see I think issues openly discussed to understand that actually it's just different and different is actually good. Um, Life is going to be enhanced by meeting people who aren't the same as yourself. I think those broader messages that are part of this actually really, really matter. And I think that for me, education was very much about helping young people to develop a sense of this wider world that they're going to be part of. and understanding it and and needing to understand if they really want to be able to thrive in it and that's why all of those changes i think really matter but i also think that individually people can make a real difference and i think schools diversity week um charities like just like us absolutely play a crucial role in almost providing that wider architecture for schools to to access that can that can really help and and also providing almost a different forum in a sense for for the debate that that's bound to continue over time, but it yeah. is really important
1: absolutely and i I think the approach of of just like us has has been that you know we're not we're not asking for a discussion about anything in the classroom that that the kids at that age wouldn't see outside the school gates anyway you know they might bump into two dads when they're going to the supermarket or two mums or like I say they might have friends who are already in that kind of family structure so it's just about including those family forms in a really positive conversation rather than them being something that's that's different and a bit scary and and a bit worrying for that child especially if if one of those children does end up becoming LGBT themselves. And like I say, having that kind of negative um, thought process from a very early age, which from all the research, and there's so much interesting psychology around this now, you know, that that early stigma really does affect your life chances. The suicide rates among the LGBT population is still double the general population, um, which suggests that there is still something going on around the mental health of, of our community. And I think it has to be linked back to those those early feelings of stigma and shame
0: I'm sure that's right so busy times for you at the moment mm. Paul, to say the least um what's the next few days look like more more time on the road or, or are you finally getting a little bit of chance to take stock and then work out the stories for next week perhaps
1: So, yeah, still busy times, um, but I have got a couple of days now to take stock about where we might go next with social care in particular. And at the start of next week, we've got a special programme, actually, that we're broadcasting from the northwest of England, looking at how uh, coronavirus has, has affected one particular community there. So we're really kind of drilling down into the health, the social care, all of the community factors that have affected them. So I'm looking forward to getting involved in that um and then I mean there's no point taking a holiday at the moment is there because where can you go
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's very true interestingly on social care some of the businesses that have been part of the social mobility pledge campaign that I've been running are those that are in the care sector and as you say many of those careers are hugely vocational and are fantastic careers actually for young people and I think that perhaps if there's one thing that can come out of this terrible crisis it's to shine a spotlight on the fact that working in that care sector might not be something that maybe a younger person might naturally think of as a career because it's working with a generation that's as far away from them age-wise as they could get but actually Mm you know for many that would think about going into their health system more broadly because of how much it matters I think it's time to really shine a spotlight on how if that's how you feel about health and if that's how you feel about in a sense this dignity of a quality of life being important to everyone then actually being part of the the care system can be a hugely rewarding route to take and one that can make a real difference to the people that you're working with
1: absolutely i think it's about valuing those jobs in a way that we haven't before Um, because nobody would ever suggest that medicine isn't isn't a perfectly bona fide career path but but i think people would be a little bit sniffy about um the care sector as a career path and yet actually a lot of the two jobs involve a similar sense of ethics, a similar sense of um of care. And um I think there needs to be a bit more parity between between the two so that hopefully we can we can start to see care as a as a really valuable contribution.
0: Paul Brand, it's been fantastic to be able to talk to you on our fit for purpose podcast. Um, Thank you so much for giving your time when it's been so busy. And good luck with the rest of the reporting that you're doing. Um, It's incredibly important and let's hope it continues to have a huge impact.
1: Thanks, Justine. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: If you've enjoyed this podcast, then subscribe to the series or share it with a friend. See you next time.